This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Last week, in the last game that the Hamilton Tiger Cats played, Will Hill, who was a defensive back, got frustrated. It, it appeared, anyway, got angry and grabbed an official by the collar, by the front of his collar, got in his face and grabbed him by the collar. And this was all caught on camera. You can go online and you can see the video of this. You can see the gif of this, which is, you know, the short little movie of it. And so it fell to the brand new, the brand new commissioner of the Canadian Football League, Randy Ambrosi, on his second day on the job to have to come up with an appropriate suspension for Will Hill. What would be the appropriate thing to give Will Hill for grabbing an official, which is the most egregious offense in sports. It really is. I mean, I suppose there could be other things if you were in hockey and you swung your stick like a baseball bat at someone's face to try and kill them or something. I mean, sure. But generally, generally, making contact, intentionally contacting, intentionally touching an official is the egregious offense in sports. Officials in sports do not carry weapons. They don't carry mace. They don't carry pepper spray. They don't have guns. They don't have batons. They can't defend themselves. The second you allow officials to be manhandled by athletes, the sport is in big, big trouble, whatever sport that is. And so what ended up happening? Now, the explanation, apparently, or the thought, what was suggested, was that Mr. Hill was just demonstrating to the official what had been happening to him on the last play. And so he simply was grabbing the, the official to show him, hey, the guy was grabbing me. And then as soon as he did, he let go and, and felt like, oh, oops, shouldn't have done that. Well, regardless, it doesn't matter what the reasoning was. Every athlete from the time they are two years old knows you cannot touch an official. You cannot grab an official. You cannot make contact intentionally with an official. So what does the commissioner do? Second day on the job. This is his moment. This is his big opportunity to show what the league is going to stand for. Is the league going to tolerate this or is the league going to come down hard on a player who does the thing that you cannot do? Well, you probably heard what the suspension was today. One game. One game. If you were listening to the show yesterday, Don Robertson and I were talking about this. The bare minimum, the absolute bottom floor entry level suspension that was assumed to be reasonable was two games. That was and that was that was going delicate on the player. That was giving the player every benefit of every doubt and going soft on him. And they came in with one game. You know what? The CFL should be embarrassed. The CFL should be embarrassed. The new commissioner of this league came in and with his first big decision, swung and missed, pardon the mixed metaphor of sports, but failed miserably in this one, whiffed badly. You've got officials who you have to protect and you give one game. That is an embarrassing decision by this league, by this boss. That is embarrassing. It's also, frankly, embarrassing to the hometown team because you may recall that it was just last year that the coach had to be suspended a game for making contact with an official. No other teams, it seems, in the CFL seem to have the problems getting suspended for contact with officials, at least not regularly, except for this one. This is, 
This is an absolute embarrassment to this league. This league needs all the good publicity it can get. This league needs all the good things to happen. And when something bad happens in a game, when some player does something stupid, which it was, I'm not, I'm not arguing that Will Hill is a bad human being. I don't know the man. He might be the most wonderful human being on the planet, but he did something that you know you cannot do. No player is allowed to touch an official, period, end of story. There is no question about this. And for the league to say that he gets one game, and apparently, I guess, I, I suppose, the part of the rationale, I, I have to assume, is that because Kent Austin, the coach of the Ticats, got one game last year for this, by the previous commissioner, who most people considered to be not a great commissioner, that was the precedent now. And so you couldn't do more than that. If I'm the new commissioner coming into the league and a bad precedent has been set, a poor precedent has been set, I'm going to take my chances by making a new precedent. I'm not going to give him 15 games, but two, three Something to show the league is serious about this. I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed for the Canadian Football League on this one. I really am. If you were in the NFL, and I know it's unfair to compare the two leagues, they're not the same thing, but if you were in the NFL and you had grabbed an official by the scruff of his collar and gotten in his face, as someone pointed out online today, Tom Brady got four games for deflating some footballs, sort of. And you're going to get, you, you don't think you're going to get more than one game? This is, this is so ridiculous that it's almost unfathomably stupid. It really, really is. And here's the other part about this that I just am totally, just don't understand. Just don't understand at all. Every year, it seems the coach of the Hamilton Tiger Cats says, we're not going to tolerate a lack of discipline on this team. We're not going to take this. We're not going to have people playing for us who don't show discipline. So where's the example of this? Brandon Banks got a stupid unnecessary roughness penalty for running off the sideline and getting into a fracas. Has Brandon Banks been cut by the team? Has he been disciplined? Has the team suspended him for a game? No. Did the team take the preemptive strike to say for, to Will Hill, the team is going to suspend you for this. We're not even going to wait for the league. We're going to take action, and, and you're going to be a healthy scratch next game. No. When Kent Austin himself, the guy who says he won't tolerate a lack of discipline, shows a lack of discipline, did he say, you know what? I'm going to penalize myself for this because I've got to lead, but no. It's just... It makes no sense whatsoever. This league is, this is, this is such a bad look for this commissioner to come in on day one, well, day two, but his first real decision that everybody is watching him and seeing what he's doing, and on his first day of making a real decision, one game. One game for grabbing an official, for committing the kind of offense that every single player, and you know, you come to the Canadian Football League sometimes and American players who aren't familiar with the game because we have different rules, they'll go offside sometimes or they'll do something within the game, within the rules of the game. They'll have an infraction because they haven't quite understood the game yet. There is no league other than WWE wrestling 
in the world that allows you to grab an official. This is not a lack of understanding. This is not a mistake. Well, it may have been a mistake, but this is not something where there was misunderstanding about whether or not the refs were fair game. This was the thing you cannot do in any sports league anywhere in North America, and it was done. And you get one game. One game. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. Got a few minutes left here. Bubba joins us. Bubba, how are you tonight? Hey, sorry, but Scott, the work, work uh, all over me here. No worries. Uh, I've just been um, explaining my complete level of dissatisfaction and, frankly, uh, why I think the suspension today was an absolutely pathetic, weak-kneed response. What say you? You know, I, I've looked at it several times. I mean, from whatever angles that were offered to us, I really thought about it. I, I, I'm surprised, I have to admit. Uh, and not to say that Will Hill should be made an example of on the commissioner's second day on the job. But, I mean, obviously, we're, we learned from we're, the time we're five years old when we start playing sports that the officials are to be protected, they are to be respected. And uh, that's one thing, you know, in baseball to get in the grill or get in the face of an official or an umpire, sorry, but in football and other sports, I think it's just not that way. And it goes up to the next level when you place your hands on them in a threatening fashion. And to me, not hearing what was said, I will say that much, but from my vision, it looked like it was a threatening action. And to me, that is something that would be worthy of no less than two games. But so, even if it wasn't threatening, you know in sports you cannot intentionally contact the referee. That's not even, there's no sport that allows that. There's no sport that allows that. I think it's worse than contact. I mean, to make a contact, I mean, we've seen that where players have, you know, in on purpose or, you know, bumped officials or whatever the case was. But to me, this was confrontational. This was clearly done in anger. And I know Will Hill feels really sorry for what he, he's done. He, he's been apologetic. I know he's talked to the league. Um, I'm not quite sure if he's talked to the official, but uh, I'm presuming there's apologies that have gone around. But still, the action was done, and for the rest of the league to be seen, it, to, to make some type of noise to the rest of the league that this will not be tolerated, and not to say that a player will do it and say, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm only going to get one game so I can do this, but a, a statement needed to be made. And, and on self Archard, it's a, it's a Hamilton Tiger Cat that you know this we're talking about here, but it, 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 it did happen. We did see it with our own very eyes, and I, I, I thought at the minimum – Two games was the punishment. But you say it's too bad that it's a Hamilton Ticat. Bob, this is the second time in two years now we've had this discussion with someone from the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Well, and this is, you know, when I kind of formulated, again, my two to three game theory, I mean, Ken Austin was sort of suspended, you know, or, I mean, and I thought it was a suspension. He wasn't allowed to be on the sideline. There's, 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 there's no coach that more wants to be on the sideline, I think, than Ken Austin. And 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 it and it hurt him. I think he was embarrassed by the situation. But even that, for the, that kind of slap that the slap down action that he had, that was a one game suspension. So if Will Hill, to me, what he did was was far more threatening and worse than than what Kent did. Well, because Kent Austin, if you, I, I don't know what the defense was in the room. Although I believe that the answer was, I didn't mean to hit him. I like I reacted. I swung my hand and I made contact. But you could make an argument, whether you believe it or not, but you could at least try to make the argument, and some people will be believing you, 
that there was no intent to make contact when Kent Austin hit the referee last time. You can't make that same argument with this one. This is why. This is why I, I thought it. It, it start to me. It started at two games. Uh, you know, based on an 18 game regular season and two game checks, and you know, missing out on action. So uh, it started at that, and I and I, in my mind, I, I thought two games. But really, it, it could be easily three because this is something that's serious. I mean, that's one thing when you punch a player. And, and, and at the time, Will apparently lost, you know, he lost it a little bit there because he was also fined for punching a, a, a writer's player as well, too. So this was a whole moment of, of, of you know, the loss of composure. And that really by the league standards, and I don't know, you know, the team can operate on however belief, whatever belief they want, but by a league standard, this, that kind of behavior cannot be tolerated. And no matter how good the man is, no matter how contrite he is, no matter how sorry he is, the action has been, has, has been taken, it's been done, and for that reason, a punishment, I thought, a, much more than a game, was going to be levied against Will Hill. What does this say to the league's officials, who already are under fire a lot? They get criticized a lot. What does this say to them as far as what the commissioner, the, the balance or the, the I don't know, what, what, what the commissioner is saying about them and their protection? Because I don't think they're sitting there feeling very good about this. I would be hard-pressed to believe the officials are happy tonight. Scott, I, I mean, I haven't talked to any of the officials. I mean, there's two I know that I can I can talk to and have conversations with, so I plan to. Um, I, I and I, but I'm going to predict that they can't be happy. There's no way they can be pleased with one game um, because they need to feel like they are respected at the very least. Respected. They don't have to be liked. They don't have to be the best friends with the coaches and the players, but they need to be respected and in and in the higher step of the league need to be protected and need to feel safe on the field. And I, I'll go back to what I said to uh, what I was talking about, the, the action. The, in the eyes of someone that watched that play, and remember, this is a play, too, with Will Hill that, you know, it, it, it's in New York papers. Everywhere that he played in the National Football League, I have seen a write-up about it. So that's Baltimore, Cleveland, and New York uh, with the Giants. I've seen write-ups about former so-and-so player, you know, uh, puts two hands on the officials, and then there's a piece of video. This, to me, looked like a threatening action in which, again, I don't know what was said, couldn't tell you, but in the, the actions, to me, appear to be threatening. And that is something that, again, in my opinion, and just my opinion only, and it cannot be tolerated, should not be tolerated, and the officials need to feel safe and protected that this would, in, in essence, and you can never stop anything from happening, but the league should do something to a, a potential player that takes that kind of action where the thought is this will never, ever happen again. Bob, I got one minute left. Every year it seems, and I said this a few minutes ago, every year it seems when the Hamilton Ticats run into either penalty troubles or something else, we hear the coach say, we won't stand for guys, we won't have guys playing for us who show a lack of discipline. What's the, what has been done to back up those statements other than just saying those things? I asked the coach about the penalties today, and it was discussed. I mean, he didn't tell me exactly, and I wouldn't expect him to tell me exactly what was said to, to said players that had undisciplined plenty penalties. And Will, Will uh, had a, a roughness penalty in that game other than the infraction. 
Um, and But the crazy thing is, Will probably was the best player on the field defensively for the Tiger Cats. And he was the best special teams player in their first game. Um, so being and, the best player buys you ex- uh, uh, passes from this behavior? Well, unfortunately, he's had past indiscretions, but which the Tiger Cats are not looking at. I mean, they're giving him another opportunity. And, but I would have to believe, very much like we saw with Brandon Banks and some of the discretions he had uh, over the past couple of years in his tenure with the Tiger Cats, that you know maybe you're on a short list now, and that you know what you, we just can't let you get away with stuff anymore. Because uh, I mean, I, I, again, I can't speak for the Tiger Cats, but I can only in, I believe that they're embarrassed as a franchise by this, and would expect that their players would act in a, in, a, in a much more professional manner. Bubba O'Neill, thank you as always, sir. Appreciate the time. Uh, yeah, again, sorry about no that. problem to get with you earlier, but uh, a good topic, and uh, look forward to talk, chatting with you anytime. No problem. I, I again, I, I just think this is a sad start for the new commissioner. Who, by the way, I'm not dumping on the commissioner as a person. He had a terrific first impression when he had his press conference and he came in and talked about the league and his passion for the league and everything else. This is a guy you want to get behind which maybe is why I feel so disappointed by this today, because you really believed that this guy was going to be really, really, really good, and maybe he still will, but first decision, first big decision, eh, big miss. And the precedent that he has now followed with, and the precedent he's put in place, could come back to, to be something he really regrets down the road. It could be. I don't know. We'll find out. Hopefully not. Hopefully nobody ever grabs an official again in these games, but we, we'll see. Not good enough. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Interest rates are going up tomorrow, apparently. We believe they're going up tomorrow for the first time in seven years, something like that. Uh, It's been a long time since the Bank of Canada has raised its rate. And it has a lot of people talking about it. It has some people worrying about it. And that's very important because a lot of people are thinking this is going to hit them hard. We'll get to that in just a second. But... What I want to know and what a lot of people seem to want to know because they don't really understand the process is why is the Bank of Canada raising the rate? What's it hoping to do? Why, if the, if the economy is cooking along tickety-boo, why change it? Well, you know who we need to bring on to talk about this. The guy we bring on every time we have something complicated economically to talk about because he can explain it in ways that we can understand. That would be Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Sir, thank you for doing this. My pleasure, Scott. Uh, Just before we get to the big picture, what we are talking about tomorrow, assuming it happens tomorrow, is a really small increase, correct? Right. So the the best thinking we have, if it happens tomorrow, would be 0.25%. We call that 25 basis points in our parlance, but 0.25%. It would only affect variable rate mortgages and lines of credit. If you have a fixed mortgage that's locked in for another three, four, five years, it won't affect you. It also won't affect credit card rates, and that's only because credit card rates didn't go down when they cut the rate, so it's not going to go up when they raise the rate. But it would be fair then, I would think, to say that if you are someone, if it's going up by 25 basis points and you are really concerned that this is going to put you into deep financial straits, um, you are probably overextended as it is right now. (laughs) Well, yes. Yes. If this has got you worried, then yes, you must be right on the very borderline. Just to give you an example, let's suppose you had a $300,000 mortgage and the rate goes up 1% or 100 basis points. You'd have to spend another $3,000 a year on interest 
at 25 basis points at $750. If you divide that by 12 months, that means you're going to pay another $60, $65 a month on your variable rate mortgage. I'd like to believe that most people are not between a rock and a hard place for $65 a month, but if that's got you shaking in your boots, you probably took on too much debt to begin with. I agree. And so for, for a lot of people, this is an, a largely, I hate to say it, it's a largely irrelevant thing, but it is interesting they're doing this. And so why is the Bank of Canada doing this? If things are going along so nicely, if the economy looks like it's picking up steam and everything's starting to get better and better, why fiddle with it? Mm-hmm. So let me just first say, although it's largely irrelevant, I think the key that people should understand it is a signal. As you started off this conversation, it's the first time in seven, eight years the interest rates have gone up. Everything else that's happened in the last decade has really been interest rates going down, and it is a signal. It's a signal that we have been going through the longest period of low interest rates in Canadian history. We've never had interest rates this low at any other time in our 150-year history. Even back in 1867, if you needed a mortgage, you weren't getting it at the rates you're seeing today. So it's a signal that this is starting to reverse, something that I have been saying for a long time, but yet I look like the boy who cried wolf. Now, why are they doing it? Well, I have to take you back as to why did they take it down. Back in early 2015, we saw oil prices drop from a barrel down to, at the worst, it got down to $25 a barrel. One half of the companies traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange deal in petroleum products one way or another, and so with that dramatic change in the price of oil, it was sending a shockwave through the Canadian economy, and what the Bank of Canada did was they lowered interest rates to try to help the patient, us, our economy, to get through that shock to the nervous system They cut it twice. They cut it 0.25 and then again another 0.25 in early 2015. We still had a minor recession. People forget this. We still had two quarters where the economy shrank, but it was just in the barest minimum possibility. They began to talk about reversing this life support, if you will. Marvin, let me jump in for just one sec before you go on. When you say they wanted to lower it to stimulate the economy or to keep it alive, what would be the idea? What was the thought behind, if I drop the rates, this is going to help the economy? Why? By just making the money cheaper to to get, so that if you needed some working capital for your business and and the money was just cheaper for you to use, if you needed a little money to help around the house, it was just a little cheaper. You'd keep the flow of money going at a time when otherwise people would say, oh, I'm scared, I'm worried, I'm frightened because of these low oil prices. In early 2016, they began to think about raising the rates, and then we got hit with another thing. That was that Fort McMurray fire. And again, it caused a one-quarter shrinkage of our economy, again, due to oil, because this fire happened north of Fort McMurray, exactly where the oil sands are. A lot of that was shut down. People were temporarily unemployed. So they said, oh, no, no, we can't do anything now. But here we are now, a full two years later after the last cuts, and what have we got? We've got low unemployment. We've got strong growth in our exports. We've got uh, a good, healthy uh, demand for our products in international marketplaces. And although we don't have inflation, uh, and I suppose many people think that's good, typically inflation is a measure of the growth of the economy. The Bank of Canada likes to see that to be around 2%. We're not there. We're around 1.3%. But because all these other things are strong, and they've been strong now for a long period of time, in essence, the doctors at the Bank of Canada are going to try to remove some of the life support they gave the 
the patient. And so they're going to try a 0.25% increase, most likely tomorrow, and just see how everything reacts. Now, your question, why not just leave it? Well, it's because this is an artificial stimulus. Interest rates really shouldn't be this low. They've never been this low historically, and it was done simply as a temporary measure. So the time has come to see if I pull this little bit of life support if the patient's okay. If it isn't, they can reverse this the first week of September. That's the next time they meet on this. But if the patient is okay, and if this rally we see continues, I don't think we'll see another interest rate increase in 2017, but in early 2018, some point in the first quarter, you might see that other 0.25% taking us back still to really relatively low interest rates, but getting that life support slowly being weaned out of the economy. You were explaining when I asked about why you would do this, that you could borrow money, you could get money. That necessarily then means what we're talking about is is taking on debt. And we've seen people, you joked about the $300,000 mortgage at the beginning. My understanding is we are more indebted now as a people in Canada than we've ever been before as far as just pure numbers. Is part of the idea of this to begin to scare some people from getting this far into debt? Is part of it a deterrent almost? Yeah, you know, I wouldn't argue with any of that. So when the Bank of Canada made money cheaper to acquire by lowering the rates, they were really doing it for the business community, to keep the lifeblood of business, the capital needed to keep businesses operating, to keep that flowing. A collateral damage or an unintended consequence of those low interest rates was that you and I said, oh, look, they're having a sale. Let's stock up. Let's get more. Oh, good. 100,000 is good. 500,000 must be even better. <laughs> and we took on more debt. And so I think that's a good comment on your part. They're not raising it 1% or 2%. They're raising it a quarter of a percent. And if that sends a little chill through you, and, and you know, you've been ignoring our conversations in the past, and you say, well, now I guess I'd better get serious to take a look at consolidating my debt, eliminating some debt I don't need to, paying down that line of credit, making sure those credit cards are clear then I don't think that's a bad thing at all. And if we were to return, right now we have a $1.67 in debt for every dollar we earn in a calendar year. Most people feel that's not a healthy rate. That's the highest in Canadian history. So if people can start to reverse this and bring their debt load back, that would not be a bad thing at all. And so we've already seen then in the past number of weeks, maybe a month or so now, with some um, things done by the provincial government to cool the housing market, which we have seen has taken a bit of an effect, that it is slowing down a little bit. Would you expect this will do even more to that? Will the housing market slow even more if people don't want to take on all that debt? Right. So let's just, before I answer your question directly, just say, what does it mean to slow the market? There are really two things we look at. One is the volume of houses. And and we've certainly seen the volume of houses or the amount of time they stay on the market is taking longer to sell a house and the volume's coming down a little bit. And I think that's, that scene is healthy. What we've not seen to the same extent is a big price fall. We don't want to burst this bubble and suddenly see housing prices fall 20 25%. There have been some signs that in places like Toronto and Vancouver, housing prices are down, but down 2%. 3%, and it's not quite clear because that's the average selling price if that's because housing prices truly are down or what we've seen is less sales at the top end of the market, more, if you will, the starter homes or the middle homes, and maybe the premium homes aren't flying around as much. We don't want to cool it more, but this should have a little effect because it'll affect any new mortgages you sign in the next two or three months. 
makes the cost of borrowing just a little more expensive, maybe gets you thinking a little more about the down payment and just how much house you can afford. I don't think it's going to have a dramatic effect. I think the bigger effect has really come from those provincial changes and even some of the federal changes around uh, stress testing your mortgage, those sorts of things. When the rate dropped and then dropped again, and I don't, I can't remember how many times you said it dropped, but the the position always has been, as I've understood it, is the, these are things you do in a difficult economy that you can lower the rate, as you've explained, so you can have more money flowing into the market. But is part of the reason this is also happening is because right now there is really nowhere further for it to go. So if there was to be another financial crisis. That cushion that has always been there of the ability to lower the interest rate to get more money in, if it happened right now, we can't do that. And so that defense mechanism is gone. We've got to get it back to where it was so we are basically reset. Yeah, Again, I wouldn't argue with that. Now, we thought, or nice people like me, academics thought, that when the Bank of Canada rate hit 1%, the overnight rate hit 1%, that was as low as they could go. Actually, in the United States, we saw their Federal Reserve Board go down to zero. They weren't charging you one dime of interest. And in parts of Europe, we actually saw what's known as negative interest. What does that mean? If you, if you put money in the bank and then went to take it out, you got less. You didn't get more. You didn't earn interest. You actually were charged a penalty for putting money in the bank. Again, very small penalties. So these were extraordinary times since that recession of 2007-8. We didn't get down that low, but we were certainly cutting our wiggle room. We got down to 0.5%. That's where the Bank of Canada rate is right now. Look, there's not much room to go any lower. So if we can use some good economic times to buy back, if you will, some of that defense mechanism, again, that's not such a bad move. I should also note, Scott, that while, while we think about this in isolation, we're not in isolation. Our major trading partner in the United States, the Federal Reserve Board down there, has already raised their rates twice in the last nine months. So they've begun doing it. We did not respond with a rate increase. That kept the Canadian dollar a little lower. Uh, we're going to likely raise our rates tomorrow, and a week or so later the Federal Reserve Board meets. I think they're going to raise their rate again. So I'm not expecting a big impact on the dollar. I don't think it's suddenly going to rise to 80 cents or 85 cents U.S., but we do try to set it also in concert with our partner, and since our partner's in a raising mood, it makes us a little more think about a raising time, too. Last thing, we got about a minute left. What would be, then, the healthy mark for the interest rate to be out? In a perfect world, in a perfect Canada, when it was not so high that it's going to cripple everybody, but high enough that we have that ability to play around with it if things got sour, where would we want it to be? Well, I think we first want to get back to 1%, and I think we should get back to 1%. This is the Bank of Canada rate, remember, the 1% Bank of Canada rate in early 2018. And then, you know, if we're back in the 2% range, 2.5% range from the Bank of Canada, that means your mortgage is coming in around 5% as an interest rate. I think that's more traditional, and that's really what we've seen in most of Canadian history. We're not going to get there quickly. We're not even going to get much past 1% uh, even in 2018, but I believe this period of record low interest rates is coming to an end, and we're going to start the ever so slow creep back to what are more historical and more more typical interest rates that we see. I said last thing, but you just raised one more I've got to ask you. If the Bank of Canada rate is 2%, and that means that you're borrowing at, say, 5%, why is the difference? Is that just markup from the banks? Yeah, that's, so that's where the bank makes the difference on money that they can get from the Bank of Canada versus us. Now, this also gives them wiggle room. I actually have a line of credit that is prime minus. So my bank actually charges me less. 
uh, I hate to say it like this, I'm a really good customer, and therefore they give me a really good deal. There are other people who on their mortgaging and what have you pay prime plus a little. This gives them some wiggle room to come up with different rates appropriate to the clients that they serve, and that's why some people pay a lot more. Some people pay closer to the bank account rate. It really depends upon the kind of company and customer you are. Marvin Ryder, always appreciate it. We'll be now we can actually understand it tomorrow when it happens and know why they're doing this. I really appreciate the we time today. Know by ten AM tomorrow, one way or the other. We will be watching. Okay. Thank you. Bye now. Uh, hopefully that helps. Hopefully that explains it. Now again, some of you that was rudimentary, that was basic, that was well duh. Like of course that's how that works. Well, okay. But there's a lot of people I found that say they understand it because they don't want to sound stupid, but they don't really understand it, which is why we bring Marvin on at times, because he can explain these things so that now hopefully you do understand why the rate is going up and why the rate is going down and what we are hoping to get out of it. Hope that helps. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Reports are, out of Britain, that... James Bond is about ready to film another movie, and you heard a lot of stuff, probably, if you're a fan, that Daniel Craig, who's been James Bond for the last, what, three or four movies, was really not interested in doing it again. Well, he may be doing it again. Sounds like he has signed up for another go-round as 007, and Adele will apparently be doing a theme song again. Not the same one she did before, I trust. As I said last hour, that would be very creative of her, a way to make a lot of money if she just changed the words to Skyfall and saying the same thing. But I don't think, no, it'll be a new song. We'll be chatting about that in just a second. And then bottom of the hour, we'll be chatting in line with that. We'll be chatting about the best action stars, characters, not the people who play them, the character. Who's the best action film character of all time? There's tons to choose from. It's amazing how many there are to choose from. We'll get to that bottom of the hour. First, your quiz question, though, before we get on to all that stuff. Everybody knows about EpiPens. They're everywhere now. There's even, I've, I've been lately seeing a TV commercial, a guy sitting at the table out at a restaurant, and he starts going into anaphylactic shock, and he jabs the pen into his leg. We all know about EpiPens. They're wonderful things. They're saving lives. They're great things. But the Epi in EpiPen stands for epinephrine. You knew that. That part was simple. Question is this. Epinephrine has another name, a more commonly used name that we use. We don't often say epinephrine, except when we're talking about an EpiPen. We talk about the other name for it, because epinephrine is a hormone. It's a body chemical. And the other name we use is usually what we tie in with the fight or flight response. So what is the other word for epinephrine that we more commonly use? If you're talking about someone having a fight or flight response, that's where you would use it. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Will is waiting for your call if you know the answer to that one. What is the other name for epinephrine? If you watch a lot of James Bond movies, by the way. Yeah, there you go. Is there another theme song, by the way, that is synonymous with his movies as much as this one? Anyway, we'll keep playing this for a few seconds. If you watch a lot of James Bond movies, you probably burn off a lot of epinephrine. Boom, boom. That might be a hint for you about the quiz question. 
But there is a new James Bond movie, apparently, that is being queued up. That's I don't know if they've got a script yet, but it's under the working title, I'm told. So says British sources. Not my British sources, just British sources. Uh, it's called Bond 25. That's the working title. And there was a lot of question about whether or not Daniel Craig was going to be back as James Bond because after he finished Spectre in 2015, he was quoted saying he would rather slash his wrists than play 007 again. Well, I don't know if time heals all wounds. I don't know if they simply said, hey, we'll throw another 10 million bucks into your pay. You know what? If I didn't want to play a character and they said, I'll pay you 10 million more bucks, you know what? I might be motivated to find new life in that character. I just might. But also, apparently, Adele is going to be back as well. Joining me to talk about all this, Jeff Weibo is the assistant editor of JamesBondCanada.com. There is a website, JamesBondCanada.com. Everything you could ever want to know about James Bond is there. Uh, Jeff joins me now. Jeff, how are you tonight? Hi, doing well, thanks. Uh, tell me something right off the bat. Twenty. This film title, this working title, apparently is Bond or James Bond Twenty Five. That means twenty five films into this, not counting. Casino Royale, I guess, which is sort of a semi-James Bond-ish kind of thing. How is he still relevant all this time later? Uh, Great question. Um, First off, they name every new Bond movie, Bond uh, 23, Bond 24, Bond 25, so that's not much of a big surprise that they're calling it that right now. Uh, until we get a title, and how he remains relevant is that the producers uh, study current events very well, and they, they know what they're doing. They're very quiet in the shadows, uh, where these uh, tabloids are saying whatever they want to say, but the producers know what's going on, and they see the current events of what's going on. You know, obviously September 11th had a lot to do with the Daniel Craig movies, and uh, this is how they're re- remaining relevant, because they just keep up with times if if our society is good with uh seeing the hero as uh this hard edge spy they'll, they'll do the movie like that if they want to see more fantasy then they, they'll do the movie like that so they they kind of just listen to the public a bit yeah i i mean i was sort of wondering whether this was what you just said which is your answer or if this is just unbelievably terrific marketing skills that they know how to play the media the people who are behind this and they continue to get their message out because they do even even before the movies ever come to the theater we always know about this james bond when, when was the first james bond movie 1960 something 1962 dr no had come out in england we have um, never really had james bond go away since 1962 correct and like the book started in 1953 so He's been around for a long time, uh, and people, you know the tabloids can say what they want, but the, these producers are sitting. Maybe they're sitting back like James Bond characters, laughing at all these <laughs> tabloid people. But uh, La- sitting uh, back, stroking a white cat and laughing. Exactly. I didn't want to call them villains. In case <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, the, every Bond villain should be stroking a cat, shouldn't they? Exactly. I mean, that just that that they made that. They actually. It's not just that they've made James Bond. How many spin-off kind of movies have they been responsible for? There's a lot, also all the Austin Powers exactly. and you got Austin Powers. You got all Derek Flint, all the stuff in the '60s. Every every day there was a new one. Uh, TV shows. Uh, Get Smart back in the '60s. Smart. It's flattering to the Bond series. Uh, it's not a negative thing. Um, they only make fun or copy uh, the best uh, in anything. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Now, if the reports are correct. Is it a good thing that Daniel Craig is coming back? 
Well, I think it'll be a really good thing for the box office. Uh, yes, uh, the fans will really enjoy it. Um, I'm not sure what kind of movie we'll get. Let's see how tired Daniel is. I think he's just literally sat back uh, and, and relaxed, hopefully, in the last couple of years. Now, earlier you mentioned uh, the slit the wrist comment, which is uh, still everybody's been talking about that the last couple of years. Now, Daniel goes on to say that, listen, you just asked him, like, after, like one kilometer left in a marathon, do you want to run a marathon tomorrow? And he's pretty Fair much in his, in his British humor, which we don't overly get sometimes, he just pretty much told everyone to piss off a bit, right? So um, he just needed a bit of time to relax, and uh, I think it'll be a very good thing for Daniel to get back, do one more, wrap it up, and then maybe we'll get a new Bond in, in the next movie. It, has he been typecast by now, though? Because it seems as this is such a huge character that it seems like pretty much everybody who played it ended up typecast one way or another as Bond. Yeah, and it's the responsibility that they uh, they take on. Um, and Daniel really thought about it before he took on the role in Casino Royale. He knew his life was going to change. He just wanted to drink a pint of Guinness in a, in a pub in England, and now he can't do that. Um, uh, but where, like, Brosnan opened up his company, Irish Dreamtime, and produced his own films and so like used Bond to help him uh, later in his career. Daniel's kind of just more of a homebody and just wants to hang out with Rachel Weisz all day. So, And, you know, who can really blame him, right? Yeah, exactly. So. Who, what makes him, I mean, uh, now I don't know, do you think, do you personally think he's a good James Bond? Uh, absolutely. Uh, when, I, when I saw Casino Royale, uh, in the theaters. Well, at first everybody was bashing him in, in the tabloids cause he was blonde and this and that. And he just got to work. So there's a lot of, uh, things even people could emulate for a man who just worked his butt off and then, uh, let the mu- movie do the talking kind of thing, not the tabloids. And I think it was the summer of 06, the trailer came out and everybody started taking notice saying, this looks like a really good spy thriller. And this portrayal of James Bond could exist in our world versus the Roger Moore where you didn't really think that that James Bond could actually exist in our world. So Daniel really brought it really close to our universe. Like, oh, maybe the British could have a spy like this. Uh, That's why I thought Casino Royale did. What? Okay, so... So, Jeff, what is, and I, I mean, I'm putting you on the spot here because I didn't prepare you with this question, but in your world, what, in your opinion, what criteria, two or three things, make a decent James Bond, make a good James Bond? Because there's got to be something when he steps on the screen that you immediately say, that James Bond has to be what? Well, what makes him a good Bond may or may not relate to good box office numbers, so you most of the Bond actors who have been very good James Bonds have gone back to the books, Ian Fleming, and he's moody and he drinks and he smokes and he, and he has lots of women. And, and uh, sometimes the public likes those things, but other times they, they'd rather just see fun. So it's all, the best part about it is there's six main James Bonds right now. Uh, you know, Sean Connery, George Lazenby, Sir Roger Moore, the late Sir Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton, Pierce Brosnan, and uh, and Craig, and everybody can pick one and who they like. So um, basically, he just it goes back to what the producers uh, Albert R. Broccoli had said before: 
the every man should want to be Bond and every woman should want Bond. And that's how they've always done their movies. But it also seems like whatever person is playing him has reflected a bit of the era they're in. Like when you talk about Roger Moore, Roger Moore was... Uh, Bell bottom. And... But not only that, he was, and I'm going to use a word that some people might not like, but he was a little goofy. And, you know, and the 70s was a little more lighthearted and a little more out there, and Roger Moore was that. I don't know that Sean Connery or Daniel Craig works in 1974. No, you're right. And and I don't know that Roger probably, Moore works now. And, and maybe not, but maybe there's some version they will eventually come up with that's sure. similar to a Rod. They go on a nice arc. You got a Moonraker where they're copying, they're copying the box office of Star Wars, yep. and most successful Bond movie, but today you some of it you'd find very goofy. And then they have For Your Eyes Only the next year later, which is a hard spy movie, which was successful, but not as much as Outer Space Laser Battle. So <laughs> it's kind of hard to, like, the public goes in different ways. So sometimes you please the fans, sometimes you please the public. They can never really win, but... Who is at the top of your list? Who is the best Bond, just for you? I just like the current one, usually. So growing up, I like Brosnan, and now I'm really into Daniel Craig. Uh, but I'm, a, I'm 33, uh, so I know there's probably people out there that are screaming Sean Connery and screaming Roger Moore and, uh, probably nobody screaming George Lazenby, but, uh, is he the bottom of your list? No, actually I, I like George. Uh, so who's the I, bottom I, of your list? Who's the least favorite bond for you? You got the most diplomatic guy on the phone. Uh, uh, I, I root for them all. So, uh, okay. I won't say last. I'll say who is the seventh best bond? Seventh <laughs> best bond. Um, David Niven. Okay. All right. Uh, <laughs> who, okay. who was in the spy spoof Casino Royale. Exactly. Yep. So I could have said Woody Allen too, right? So. Uh, Woody, what was Woody Allen in? Woody Allen. Well, in, in Casino Royale, oh. their, their, their plot was to name every single person James Bond to confuse the enemy. <laughs> so it also confused audiences. But, uh, um, Woody Allen was James Bond also. If, okay, we've been talking about James Bond, the character, and that, of course, is central to any of the James Bond movies. If you have a bad Bond, it's going to be a bad movie, I would guess. But not equal, but, man, it's getting up close to it as almost as essential an ingredient, it seems, to a James Bond movie is the theme song. And we've heard that Adele is being talked into being in this again. Uh, she did Skyfall, which was not that long ago, and now is going to be back. I was trying to think, other than Shirley Bassey, who I think did, what, three uh, Bond. Has there been anyone else who's done two? Uh, no. I don't think there's anyone else other than Shirley Bassey who's done more than one. Correct. Uh, but I have to burst a bit of a bubble. Uh-oh. Because uh, there is no way, just in my opinion, as a Bond uh, nerd, <laughs> that they would have be talking to Adele today when they don't have a director, they don't have a title, they don't have Daniel Craig signed, and uh, I think that was a big tabloid thing. Okay. Selling, selling their newspaper, selling the websites. Uh, traditionally, the Bond title song after the movie is formulated, it comes out um, in the summer after production. So I, I, what if the Mr. Director, what if, um, if it's Sam Mendes again or Chris Nolan's been quoted right now what if he's like i hate adele right so you know, you know, <laughs> these directors have a lot of pull these days in the bond movies uh and the producers have been giving them free reign so um plus adele's vocal cords have been hurt right now maybe i think she might be back but uh i, I anyways but to get back adele was amazing uh in skyfall 
first time I heard that, it was an amazing song, which is usually rare for a Bond song. Usually they have to grow on you. Right, yep. Uh, but it's, yeah, you know what, what was so interesting about that one, and by the way, I'm rooting for Rush to be doing the next theme song, just for, okay. that's no, my, that's what I'm putting in there. You, um, you would know. You would know. Now, what, when you said Adele's uh, Skyfall sounded great, mm-hmm. what was so unique about it, and I was trying to understand then, I'm trying to still understand, the second it started, it sounded like a James Bond theme song. And I'm trying to figure out what it is that makes all, so many, not all, there's a number of them that go way off the grid, but so many of them sound immediately like there is a James Bond sound. What is it about them that, what is, what is it in the songs that carry that similarity? Do you know? I mean, it's like, um, to me, I was thinking, okay, like muted French horns and brass was like like the first thing. They're very eerie. They're very... You're in the mood for spying, kind of, or like, and some of them are sing directly about James Bond, like nobody does it better. Um, then you got Goldeneye, which actually is talking about Pierce Brosnan, not James Bond. If, if you can actually read the lyrics, it's about him not getting the part in the eighties. <laughs> Tina Turner sings it, um, but it, some of them, like you said, hit the mark completely. And other ones, you listen to it, and you're like. Hmm. Um, it, yeah, I like this. It's James Bond, but no, it, some of them are not. They don't hit that mark, so it's really tough to put a finger on it. They've obviously got it right the last couple times, even though some of the fans didn't like Sam Smith's, but he still won the Oscar. Um, I, I think it's like you said. It's got the horns. It's eerie. It's got a lo- loud vocalist, um, and they have a lot of attitude, and they carry it. They carry themselves very well when they sing it, and then that's those are the ones that are successful. You said then, you said by the way that some of them really worked. What what would again? I asked you for Bond. What do you put at the top of the list? What are the two or three uh, the best James Bond songs? Um, Theme uh, songs. Okay, well, we won't count some of the newer ones, but we'll get back because they're they won Oscars and they're phenomenal. But we'll say like a View to a Kill was a, was a crazy uh, hit for Duran Duran in the eighties, um, and. Also, Carly Simon's Nobody Does It Better were probably like the iconic Bond songs. And obviously, then you get Shirley Bassey's Goldfinger, and uh, then she goes on to sing a few more. But And then Tom Jones for Thunderball. These yep. really scream out Bond, these, these theme songs. Um, and interesting, Barbara Broccoli, the co-producer, she's been involved with the... Maybe she's talking to Adele. It's just... You know, maybe a text, nothing crazy, but uh, she was always picking out the hottest pop person usually. So she had Aha in the in the eighties for the Living Daylights. Yeah, and you know, sadly, they couldn't uh, match the level of Take on Me because right. um, I I was trying to I was listening to that and I could barely remember the Aha Bond song today. Right, not so, really memorable. No, but they they um, they like to pick what's a current event. Yes. Of pop singer so it's so hard to tell so like you'd be the you're the radio host you'd probably tell me who's like should be singing the song right now right and again i'm sticking with rush (laughs) and they seem to go with the popular decision for song they don't go with the popular decision for casting for the uh character no and the thing with that is it doesn't i was gonna say it doesn't always work it often doesn't work i mean i i would argue that the worst james bond theme song of all time was Die Another Day by Madonna. Un- unlistenable. 
Murray, uh, uh, my uh, editing partner, James Bond Canada, uh, told me not to mention it. So <laughs> he's like, you better not say that's your favorite. So, or he would disown me. So, um, yeah, of course, uh, everybody uh, cringed at that one. But at the time, Madonna was was huge. Well, she was always huge, but uh, fair enough. And then she was making that big comeback uh, right around 2002 as well. So. Last thing before I let you go, because we just got a minute or so left here, and I don't know if you know, I don't know if you can answer this question because I mean, obviously, you're not in the production sequence right. of things. But how do the song? Do you have any idea? Have you ever learned how the Bond song thing works? So let's say Adele was going to do the song, and let's say they come up with a name. They're going to call it um, Jeff's New Bond. That's the name of the movie, and they go to Adele and say, Adele, we'd really like you to do a song for us. Does she simply? come up with whatever she wants, show up and hand it to the producer and say, here you go, take it or leave it? Or is that is it much more collaborative that they tell her what they want and she decides whether she's going to sing it or not? Um, I know with Adele and with Sam Smith, I believe Sam Mendez was very heavily involved, especially in Sam Mendez's for sure, telling him what he wanted. He wanted like a romantic theme and then he wanted to be able to use the theme in the movie. And then it also, another point you didn't bring up is like the uh, the guy who's doing the scores of the movie. Yes. Um, in certain parts of the entire series, he's been heavily involved in in making that, and other times it's like you're saying has been a total standalone project where they just cut and paste a Bond song, and it doesn't flow with the. Uh, musical score to the movie. Well, so. I can't believe that Madonna would let someone say to her, here's what you're going to sing and how you're going to sing it. I mean, she's just too right. big a star. So, to. Uh, so that was David Arnold's uh, score for Die Another Day, and you don't hear any of the that theme played romantically or some part <laughs> or action-wise throughout the movie, versus you'll hear Goldfinger throughout yep. the entire movie kind of as he's thinking the golf ball and this and that, right? So it's kind of because John Barry worked Shirley Bassey, right? Uh, by the way, uh, the other one that should be on the list, um, and I just got a tweet about this, and I agree 100%, uh, Live and Let Die should be way up near oh, the top. Yeah. I saw yeah, Paul funny. McCartney last year doing it live, and even if you didn't love Live and Let Die before, when you see him do it live, you suddenly become a fan. Everyone sings along to that one. Right? Of course. In a bar or something. And my wife will say, well, that was Guns N' Roses. And I <laughs> oh, all right. Well, yeah. I'll let you uh, sort that out with her. That's uh... <laughs> oh no, she, she's uh, learning her bond enough. She's, Excellent. We, we travel the world for Bond, uh, so she loves it too. Jeff Weibo, associate editor of JamesBondCanada.com. Hey, really appreciate you taking the time to do this tonight. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Talk to you later. Uh, again, go check it out. It's actually a really great website if you like James Bond. JamesBondCanada.com, and. Again, the new movie is coming out. That is where, well, some of the places where they'll they do a lot of, they'll gather some information when it's out and you can find all your stuff there. Anyway, um, Will, what's your favorite James Bond song, by the way? What is, um, do you have one? Yeah, I actually have to go with Skyfall for that because all right. be, it might Nothing have- Nothing wrong with that. It has an edge to it because its entire opening sequence fit in with the story. And as far as I know, that's the first time uh, that's happened in a Bond film. It made sense for everything, so maybe I'm a little biased. No, I'm I'm going with Goldfinger by Shirley Bassey. I think that one is the yeah tip the so prototypical James Bond song. If you listen to that, every James Bond song spins off of that one. That's what they all kind of yeah. gave gave voice to was that uh, was that song by and and 
other, I mean, maybe there's people listening who can answer this question who are old enough to remember because I'm not. Did Shirley Bassey really have much of an extensive career other than the James Bond songs? Because I don't recall hearing her other work. But man, she had some great shit. As I say, I think it was three. Let me just check really quickly here. She had um, Goldfinger with Shirley Bassey. Uh, uh, hold on a second. I'm just going to very quickly go through here. Uh, Diamonds Are Forever was Shirley Bassey. And there was one more that was her. It was, For Your Eyes Only was by Sheen Easton. That was great too, by the way. Um, Shirley Bassey, where is, oh, and Moonraker was, uh, was Shirley Bassey. But I don't recall really other stuff that she, but that may just be a generational thing. I just may not be familiar with her stuff. But if you're going to have something, if you're only going to be known for something, being the lady that sort of created the Bond sound, that's pretty good. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. There's a website in which it's been put to the people to rank the greatest action heroes of all time. So Will and I are going to go through the top, I've just, I've picked the number here as the top 30. I don't know why I'm picking 30. I could go to 100, but we don't have time for that. Number 30 on the list. And some of these, you, I would think most of these you will know. Some may be a little unclear at the very beginning. Tyler Durden. Any idea who Tyler Durden is? Yes. yes the first rule of Tyler Durden <laughs> is don't talk about Tyler Durden. <laughs> that is Brad Pitt from Fight Club. Kind of a, an anti-hero, really, more than anything. There's a bunch of anti-heroes in this category. It, it works for the genre. Number 29, Laura Croft. Who, uh, what was her name? Uh, Brad Pitt's wife. Angelina, uh, Angelina Jolie. Jolie, thank yeah, you. Who came played. from video games originally. It did. I, I've still not seen any of the Laura Croft movies. They are super cornball. Are they? Yeah. Like, so I don't need to spend the time. I'll find something else to watch. Yeah. I mean, if you're in for a B movie, sure. Number 28. This one I'm surprised to find on the list because I would think of this guy more as almost a comic character, more than an adventure movie. Uh, Captain Jack Sparrow. I would not have thought of him I would either. not have thought of him to no, be on the list. He makes sense. Uh, go through a few more. Number 27, Ethan Hunt from Mission Impossible and all the various Mission Impossible movies. That's uh, Tom Cruise. Number 26, Will is going to love this one because this is, I think, well, if if Luke was still sitting in the seat across the, wi- the mirror or the window, I know he would be a fan of this one. I don't know. I think Will is. Deadpool. Are you a Deadpool fan? I am. I'm not a major Deadpool fan, but I'm glad he's on the list. Yep. Anyone who has not... I saw Deadpool. It was on Netflix. And and I'm one of those people I knew nothing about it. I did not have any clue what I was getting myself into. One of the truly weird (laughs) action movies. If you've not seen it, if you don't know what it is, how do you even describe it? It's a comedy, action, fantasy, sci-fi, yeah. Spider-Man meets Matrix it's meets... A, it's a spin-off from the X-Men films, but a totally different tone. It's, it's very strange. Uh, 25, Dutch from Predator, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, number 24, Leon from The Professional. Have you ever seen that? I have not seen that one either. I, it has been on my list for years. Number 23, Frank Martin from Tra- Transporter. Number 22, Neo from the matrix. Now we get into the ones that I got to tell you, because I mean, a lot of these, I not don't know a ton about them. I'll be honest. I see enough movies, but number 21, the, I would 
probably bet more people know this guy have seen this guy than many of the movies. This is right up there as far as who's seen the most of them. Uh, Rocky Balboa. Rocky Balboa, number 21 on the list, of course. I mean, how? I, and he's an action. It's an action star. He's not out there shooting people up, but he's punching people. He, he beat Yvonne Drago, and I believe that's based on a true story. And he beat Clubber Lang. And Mason the Dixon Line. So you know that he's good. Number 20, Blade. Are you a Blade fan, Will? Not a major Blade fan. How about Max Rokotansky? I do not know Max Rock, Rockatansky. That would be Mel Gibson from Mad Max. Oh, way back oh, in the day, way back yeah, in the day. Okay. Let me let me tell you this. Mel Gibson has had a rough few years. Let's be honest. Mel Gibson yeah. has had his troubles with uh, stuff. Everything. With uh, yeah, pretty much uh, reality and the fact that he's pretty much been dumped on way more than a lot of other. Here's the thing about Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson said some things as I understand it, in a drunken stupor that were horribly offensive. Yeah, terrible. And he has been just battered for the stuff he said. And I'm not defending the stuff he said. No. But there's a lot of people in Hollywood that have done a lot of worse stuff. Yeah. For example, Mel Gibson said those things, which again, I'm not defending, and he has basically been blackballed by Hollywood. Roman Polanski is hiding in Switzerland because he's, uh, they still want him on child rape charges. And Meryl Streep is giving speeches at award shows talking about how wonderful Roman Polanski is. I'm sorry, there's something a little screwy about that. But nonetheless, I'm not, again, I'm not defending the stuff Mel Gibson said. It just seems though he's paid more than a, the same price as a lot of other guys have. Anyway. We're going to see Mel Gibson again and again and again in this. That's why I'm bringing this up. Because right away again, number 18 on the list. Oh, one of the great movies. If you're a guy, you know this movie. If you're a guy and you haven't seen this movie, you're going to watch this movie at some point and you're going to know this movie. William Wallace from Braveheart. William Wallace. William Wallace. I'm not sure that Braveheart is a great movie, but it's a guy movie. It is like... It is an epinephrine movie. If you need to have some epinephrine or whatever the other, that's our quiz question tonight, whatever the other word is for that, you watch William Wallace and Braveheart. Uh, 17, a man with no name, Clint Eastwood, in a fistful of dollars and for a few dollars more. Good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, 16, one of our few women to make the list. Which, I don't know what it says about the fact that so few women are action heroes. The reason I say, I mean, the, the immediate response would be, well, that's very sexist, that there's not more women. But who goes to see action movies? Guys, right? And so young teenage boys are the largest, I would think, part of the audience. And if they want to see guy action heroes, you know, look, Hollywood does nothing without the bottom line in mind. If they believe that the guy hero is going to get teenage boys to come and spend their money, that's why. If they believe that women were the ones who were going to get young boys, teenage boys, and young girls to come out, they would have them up and down the lineup. Honestly, I think part of that, though, is that they've just, they've kind of fallen behind on the times. The majority of, like, extreme action fans that I know, 
those are my friends who are women. But I, we're seeing kind of a push towards more. Uh, the new. Oh, no, I agree. Yeah. I agree. But I'm talking about like many of the characters we've talked about have gone yeah, back to yeah. the 70s, the 60s, the 50s. It's been the, the idea has been action films are for dudes. But I think it's in truth, it's a lot more of a balanced approach. Uh, but anyway, number 16, the person I'd never mentioned was Sarah Connor from the Terminator series. Yes. Of course. Yeah, she needs to be there. Uh, and of course, Sarah Connor in real life whose name is eluding me right now, is married to James Cameron, or is is or was, mar- was married to was. James Cameron, the director of Titanic. Number 15, Snake Pl- Pliskin from Escape from L.A. and Escape from New York. Number 14, King Leonidas. You know who he was in? Yes, 300. 300, absolutely right. Uh, oh, one of the great names. Number 13, Maximus Decimus Meridius. From Gladiator, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. Um, Russell Crowe, not a huge fan of Russell Crowe as an actor, but that was a great movie. If I mean, if you like people having their limbs chopped off in slow motion and when spurting blood, and oh yeah, that was a great. I'm, I'm not, I'm not actually big into that stuff, but that was a good movie. I still have to return the VHS of it <laughs> to a friend of mine. At least it's not to Blockbuster. Yeah. You're the reason Blockbuster went out of business. You have their one copy of Gladiator. I gotta have someone search it for me like that Seinfeld episode. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's 40 years later. Number 12, greatest action heroes of all time, Terminator, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Number 11, back to Mel Gibson, Martin Riggs, from Lethal Weapon and all the Lethal Weapon series. Number 10, another woman, woman on the list. What do you think could be another woman on the list of great action heroes? Ripley. Ripley has to Number be there. Number 10, Ellen Ripley from Alien. You are absolutely correct. Number 9, Harry Callahan. You know who Harry Callahan was? From Sudden Impact and Magnum Force. And Deadpool. Go ahead. Make my day. Feel lucky, punk. I can't do a good. You just got to whisper and that try and make pretty, it deep in your voice. good. Go ahead. Make my day. Uh, number eight, and I think this guy's only on the list because there's so many of these movies out there that you kind of have to. Jason Bourne, from all the Bourne yeah. legacy, the Bourne ultimatum, the Bourne supremacy, the Bourne repetition, the Bourne dragging it on, <laughs> all the other ones. Number seven, I'm surprised it took this long to get to somebody in this series, Han Solo. Not, you know what? I would And not... I would have put him even up higher, perhaps, but... yeah. But number seven, Han Solo. Good. Number six, Wolverine. Yeah. Number five, oh, I loved the first one of these movies. I hated all the rest of them, but the very first time I saw First Blood with John Rambo hiding in the woods with the bungee sticks and taking on the bad guys who lived. And that actually, that movie was filmed in a little town or in the outskirts of a little town called Hope in B.C., that I uh, that I drove through one time, and they have that you know the bridge that he walks across, where the cop tells him keep walking, and he turns around. Yeah, yeah it's all there. Wow, uh, John Rambo, number five. So that leaves us four more to go. Who should be on the list? Who's not on there yet? I've already told you who one of them is going to be. Who we haven't hit yet. That would be James Bond. I'm not going to tell you where he is yet. Number four on the list, Batman. Okay. That makes sense. Cause he, he's the James Bond of superheroes. He, he makes sense. I still say that Batman would beat Superman, but I have no way to back that up. I, I've seen it happen in some comics. I don't read any comics, but I just, you know, Batman has the cooler soup. Superman, Superman to me is hard to take serious when he's got his underwear on outside his pajamas. 
That always seemed Te- to me to be an oddity. Technically, or Batman used bad to morning. do that, but his co- his underwear was the same color as the rest. So yeah, but then Batman out. got the thing with the giant, enormous cod piece that screamed, yeah. I'm a dude. <laughs> and not only am I a dude, I'm a real big dude. He had something to prove. They was, uh, and I remember in those first movies, and, Ro- and uh, Robin had one too. I mean, Robin was like ballet dancer cod piece. I mean, this thing was enormous. Uh, number three. One of my favorites, Indiana Jones. Yeah. Indiana Jones on the greatest action. So she says two. Is James Bond number one or number two? I'm going to put him at number two. I feel like there's someone we're, we're just totally forgetting who James will be number Bond one. is number two. Now, I got to argue. I, I think he should be number one. When you consider there's 25 James Bond movies and seven guys who have played him and the longevity and the everything else. But he is number two, leaving number one. Let me tell you, we just got a second here. Let me tell you who number one is not. I'll tell you other people who are further down on the list who you might have thought, oh, I know who that's going to be. Not Captain America, not James T. Kirk, not Superman, not John Wick, not Thor, not Tony Montana. Tony Montana. I mean, it's, it's hard to give Tony Montana the thing. First, you get the money. When you get the money, you get the power. And when you get the power, you get the woman. Uh, not Darth Vader. That would have been an interesting one. And not Yoda. Yeah. Not Hulk. Not Obi-Wan Kenobi. Not Conan the Barbarian. Not Spider-Man. Not Lieutenant Frank Drebin from the Naked Gun series. Oh, I was wondering. Leslie Nielsen. <laughs> not Chuck Norris. Not Luke Skywalker. Oh, Chuck. Not Spartacus. Not Robocop. Not Jack Ryan. Not... Senior Inspector Chan Kwok Wing. You know who that is? No. No, he was in Police Story and a bunch of other ones oh. and a bunch of B-movies. Not Hannibal Lecter. Not, oh, here's another H- good Hannibal one. Hannibal should not be there at here's all. Here's another good one who could have been there. Not Inigo Montoya. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Uh, not Katniss. Not Robin Hood. Not Atticus Finch. How does Atticus Finch end up on this list? Atticus Finch is a great hero, but not an action movie hero. The only thing Atticus Finch did action-wise was shot a dog in the movie that was, like, snarling and rabid. Yeah. Uh, not Spock. Not Vito Corleone. Again, I don't know how... Oh, I'm too far down the list now. Number one on the list. Greatest action hero of all time. John McClane. Oh, okay. Die Hard. Yeah. Okay. Yippee-ki-yay. Can't repeat it. <laughs> That is your list. Number one, John McClane. I don't know if I agree with that. I would have put Indiana Jones or James Bond number one. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.